0: Archbishop Desmond Tutu is an Anglican priest in South Africa. Tutu is a leader and activist during South African apartheid. Now, if you don't haven't heard of apartheid, it stands for apartheid, or the forced segregation of blacks and whites. So for decades, this nation was ruled by an oppressive white minority that protected their power by uh, stripping blacks of citizenship, um, forcing them to live in slums, and violently... Uh, Putting down any opposition Due to international pressure Apartheid finally began to crack In the 80s White and black leaders entered into negotiations About how to restructure their government And in the first free elections That South Africa had ever had Nelson Mandela was elected the country's First black president Now in order to help the country move forward Peaceably Mandela formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission And he asked Desmond Tutu to lead it The TRC served as a forum where victims of apartheid could give voice to the injustices they had suffered. The commission promised to redress wrongs and arrest criminals, but they also offered amnesty to uh, people who confessed their racial crimes and demonstrated genuine contrition. For several years, the commission met in a televised open forum so that the entire nation could be uh, part of the healing process. In his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, Tutu recounts the progress made by the commission. He explains why South Africa, and any nation for that matter, has no hope, no future without forgiveness. This is also a message that we find in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, that there is no future without forgiveness. If you're just joining us, we've been studying the book of Isaiah here at Rooftop for quite a while now. Isaiah, uh, if you don't know, was a prophet who lived in the 8th century before Jesus. He was called by God to deliver a, a rather difficult, stern message to his people, the nation of Judah. Because of Judah's immorality and idolatry, God was going to allow them to be punished by their enemies and removed from the promised land and uh, forced to live in exile in Babylon. And that's what we see play out in the book of Isaiah as Judah is destroyed by the Babylonians and then taken captive. But The message of Isaiah isn't all doom and gloom. We'll read in the book that God doesn't give up on his people. He intends to rebuild them. He intends to bring them back to Jerusalem. He tells them that he still has plans for them. And that's what we're talking about in this mini-series of Isaiah, the promises God makes to his people. You see, throughout Isaiah, God promises a future, a glorious future, despite their sin, a glorious future for his people. He promises them a time of peace a cessation of war. He promises to, out, uh, to pour out the Holy Spirit on their lives and nation. And he also promises forgiveness. He promises to forgive their sins. Yahweh knows for Judah and for us what Desmond Tutu knew for South Africa. There is no future without forgiveness. So with that introduction, let me go ahead and read to you our text for the morning. It comes from Isaiah chapter 33. I'll be reading to you verses 17 through 24. You can follow along from the screen behind me. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more, people whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread There, an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven." In this passage, the Lord is casting a picture through Isaiah of the future that he has planned for his people. Uh, Their nation has been overrun by their enemies, but he predicts a future time, a future place where things will be different. In this future place, for starters, a king will rule. Your eyes will see the king and his beauty and view a land that stretches afar, the prophet writes. A land that stretches afar. The king will be glorious and the land will be filled with wide open spaces, just like the Dixie Chicks sang, right? Wide open spaces. Rooms to make big mistakes without the mistakes. And in this land ruled over by this king, there will be no more oppression. The officials who ruled them and oppressed them in captivity will be no more. Where is that chief officer, he asks. Where is the one who took the revenue? Their corrupt rulers in Babylon will be gone. This kingdom will be centered in Jerusalem, their capital city, he writes, and it will be a peaceful abode, a tent that will be not moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up. Now, this tent imagery is actually borrowed from the Old Testament tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of God was the tent in which Yahweh lived as the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. So every time they wandered around in the desert and found a new place, they'd have to set up the tent, the tabernacle, for God to live. And they went through a new place, they'd have to tear it down and then build it up again. But in the future, they will wander no more and Jerusalem will be their forever home. They will pitch their tent And never have to pack up again. The new kingdom will be a place of broad rivers and streams that will water their crops. Everyone will be provided for as abundance of spoils will be divided. And there will be no more sickness in the new kingdom. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. No one will say, I have cancer. No one will say, I just caught the coronavirus. No one will say, I have mental illness. No one will say, I have a disability. No one will have to say that because no one will have those things. This will be the new kingdom. Seems like a fantasy land, honestly. It's hard to even imagine a place like this. It it feels kind of silly to describe, let alone believe in. But despite the silliness of this place, we all still yearn for it. We all still believe in its potential. My wife and daughter just went with some friends and family to Disney World in Orlando. Have you ever been to Disney World or Disneyland? Disneyland. Uh, they bill themselves, Disney World, Disneyland does, they build themselves as the most magical place on earth, or as I've heard elsewhere, the happiest place on earth. And according to my family, comes pretty close. Uh, I don't think, uh, from the pictures that I saw, uh, I don't think I've seen my family this happy in a long time, especially at Harry Potter Land, or whatever it's called. Potter Land, what's it called? World. Harry Potter World, right. Uh, they were in heaven, as far as I could tell, uh, in fact, this was the original plan for Epcot Center. Do you know Epcot Center? It's that other land with a big golf ball at the center. Um, Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Did you know that? Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Disney's original plan was Ep- for Epcot was that it would literally be the perfect place The plan was that it would be a utopian autocratic company town filled with Disney employees living there, enjoying the latest technologies, and ruled by Walt Disney himself. So that was actually the plan. A perfect town with all the latest tech, with Walt Disney as their mayor. Now, Disney died before he could be coronated, the mayor of uh, Epcot, and Epcot was changed into something else. Now it's a big lake with international food stands all around it. Not quite the vision. (laughs) But that was the plan. Heaven on earth. We've always dreamed of the perfect world, even Walt Disney did. Despite our ambition, though, we've never been able to create that place. Ever. But God is here saying in Isaiah that there is a time and a place where he will make it happen. He has promised to make it happen, and he will do it. But now in my description of this magical place, I actually left out a key element tucked in at the end of the passage. It will not just have have wide open spaces and flowing rivers and streams and a tent that you won't have to tear down and move. This will also be a place, a kingdom of forgiveness, of mercy. This is the last line of Isaiah's poem. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Forgiveness will be the defining mark of this new place. It will be a place where sins are forgiven. This is a theme, actually, in the book of Isaiah. The book, uh, in the book, God promises Judah throughout Isaiah that he can and will forgive his people of their sins. The prophet writes in chapter 55, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon and quite famously, the Lord promises his people in the very first chapter of the book, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is the Lord's promise to the people of Judah that all their sins can and will be forgiven. He can and will do this because it's who he is. It's who the God we worship is. As the Torah says, God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the God of Israel, a gracious God who can forgive sin. Now, yes, the God we worship is a holy God who maintains the highest moral standards for his people. Just because God is gracious doesn't mean he doesn't despise sin. God hates sin. But even though he is holy, and pure. He is forgiving and merciful. He loves us and wants to forgive us. He knows that's the only way that we can make it into the forever kingdom. He knows what Desmond Tutu does. That we have no future without forgiveness. This was God's promise to the people of Judah. And this is his promise to us. And we really need to understand this. We need to understand that we are sinners just like the people of Judah were. We are just as terrible sinners as they were. You see, it's easy when you read the book of Isaiah to think, oh, well, I'm bad, but not like Isaiah bad. But that would be wrong of us to think. I mean, what were the sins of Judah? Well, they worship false idols. We do too. We worship things that are not God, our reputations, our comfort, our appetites, our success, our politics. They were an immoral people too, practicing greed and sexual licentiousness. So are we. We are just as lustful and greedy and arrogant as them. if even just in our minds, which matters. We are sinners as bad as Judah was. And this is one of the most important things we'll ever need to understand. I mean, really, truly understand. We need to understand the depth, the extent, and the consequences of our sin. We need to understand how much we have rebelled against God's will for our lives. You see, the only way to really appreciate the mercy of God is to appreciate how much mercy is required for us to God, for God to stay in relationship with us. This is hard for us though. We struggle to accept our identity as sinners. We don't want to think of ourselves that way. So what do we do? Well, we cope with our sin in all kinds of ways. We minimize our sin by comparing ourselves to people who seem worse than we are. Well, you know, at least I'm not like that guy. Or we don't think about our sin so that we don't have to acknowledge it. We stay busy watching the news or watching Netflix instead of meditating on our sinfulness before a holy God, which would be a far better use of our time. Or we spend time with other sinners like us so that we can feel accepted. As sinners who don't judge us, feel better about ourselves as sinners by spending time with other sinners, so we just feel like we're part of them. Or we get really good at pointing out other people's sin as a way to distract ourselves from our own. I see this in marriage counseling all the time. Two people who are really very well versed on each other's sins, but kind of dumb about their own We cannot be Christians without coming face-to-face with our sin and all its ugliness. To be a Christian is to admit that we are our biggest problem. It's like what G.K. Chesterton wrote years ago. Chesterton is a British author who was responding to a question in the newspaper. The question was, what's wrong with the world today? And they invited people to respond. Chesterton wrote back, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are what's wrong in the world today. I am what's wrong in the world today. You are what's wrong in the world today. Not the stuff you see on CNN. Not the stuff you see on Fox News. You are what's wrong in the world today. In fact, let's practice. Do a little Skylar val here thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, Dear Sir... With more conviction, rooftop. Turn to your neighbor, dear sir, I am what's wrong in the world today. Now say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> I am what's wrong in the world today. Okay, that's progress. Finally, people are fighting over who should bear more responsibility, me or you. <laughs> but Chesterton aside, this is still a problem. This is the big problem, right? It's a big problem because sin is not okay. Sin is a smear on the goodness and perfection of God's creation. And the place that God promises to create, the forever kingdom, can have no sin, no guilt. There's not going to be any sin in the most magical place on earth, right? That's not magical. So, how does God intend to create such a magical place for us when we are such big problems? How's that going to happen? Well, this is the promise. God promises to remove our sin. He promises to remove our sin. Now, the removal of sin from our lives is going to be a very tedious and complicated process. It's going to take the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's going to take time. It's going to take pain. It's going to take suffering. It's going to take refinement. But the removal of sin from our lives starts with a remarkably simple act. It starts with forgiveness. This is what Isaiah says God intends to do. God intends to remove our sin, starting with forgiveness. And go back to the passage that I read from chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is an image from, the Hebrew, from Hebrew temple worship. Blood is a symbol of sin and guilt. So when animals were sacrificed on the altar, their blood symbolized Judah's sin, but God is saying that that guilt will be forgiven and removed, it will be washed away, their red stains will be white as the purest snow. When I think of this verse, it reminds me of some of the stain removal commercials that I've seen over the years. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you've seen those oxyclean infomercials on dirty carpets and clothes that are stained beyond recovery. But then this charismatic pitch man pulls out this amazing new product, that somehow magically just pulls the stains right out of the fibers. You're sitting there watching this big blood stain on the carpet disappear, and then you're wondering, how is that possible? And next thing you know, you're like on the telephone ordering some for you and all your family members. In fact, years ago, I was getting my carpets cleaned in order to sell my house, and I knew I was going to have some problems with the carpet uh, in the basement. Our downstairs carpets were filthy, and I knew they were going to be a challenge, so I called this professional carpet cleaner to see what he could do, and he came over and took him downstairs. I showed him the spots, and he looked at them, and he saw some of the stains, and he said, Oh dear. <laughs> and I said, well, What do you mean, oh dear? He said, well, that there's stain there. That there stain is like red dye number five. And I said, red dye number five? He said, red dye number five. Red dye number five, he went on to say. Red dye number five, it's like this chemical and it's blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh dear. And then I said, well, do you have like some miracle product like in the commercials that can get red dye number five out of the carpets? And he looked at me and he shook his head. He's like, it's not like that, son. <laughs> uh, I can try, but it's, there's no miracle product. I, it's just not like that. I can do my best. It's not like He felt so sorry for me in my ignorance that I had been willingly misled by this pitch man with the product. And he did his best. Some of the stains came up, but that red dye number five stain, it was still there. Now it was like pink dye number five. It was faded. It was still there. That's our sin. Red dye number five. It's a sort of stain that won't come out, son. OxiClean won't work in our sin. No human product can get rid of sin and guilt. It's stuck in there, in those fibers. Our greed is woven in. Our lust is built into our brains. Our racism is genetically programmed. Our lack of self-control is part of our humanity. We were raised by birth to be greedy materialists. We inherited our parents' dysfunction. We are stained by red dye number five. OxiClean isn't going to work here. Psychotherapy isn't going to work here. Medication isn't going to work here. Reading a good self-help book isn't going to work here. We are stained sinners and it's not coming out. So what do we do? Oh dear. Oh dear, what do we do? As the song says, what can wash away our sins? Well, only God can take care of that. <laughs> only God can take care of that sort of guilt. And He does it through forgiveness. This is what Isaiah looks forward to a time and place when God's forgiveness will make our sins go away. If I may be so bold. That's what you need to hear this morning. You came here to Rooftop this morning for lots of reasons. You came for community. You came for good music. You came for fellowship. You came to drop your kids off. You came to get connected, which is great. But you're here because you need your sins forgiven. Your lives are a mess. Your marriages are failing. Your lust is out of control. You can't control your anger. You're failing your children. You're failing yourself. You're not taking care of your body. You're missing opportunities to serve your neighbors. You're gossiping about people who don't deserve it. You're blind to your own arrogance. You're greedy with your money. You're anxious about the future. You're worshiping the god of politics. You're neglecting your friends. You're thinking unfair things about people who look different than you. You're being lazy on the couch. You're a sinner stained by red dye number five. Don't disagree. Don't look at your husband. Don't look at your wife. Don't say, "Well, at least." You're You're not a murderer, you're a sinner. Stand with red dye dye number five. For the record, so am I. This is a problem. It's a big one. God's not going to let that sin ruin his magical kingdom. We don't deserve to go there. It's not going to happen. But he has a plan. Even though we're sinners, he has a plan. He still loves us, and he has a plan. He's going to remove our sin. He's going to start by forgiving it. We can be forgiven, and we can be forgiven now. We can be forgiven today. We can be baptized for the remission of our sins today. Is it really that easy, though? Is it really that easy to be forgiven? Do you just believe, get dunked, and you're like washed clean? Is it like in the commercials where God like takes a sinner and puts him down there and agitates him a little bit in the water and then pulls him up and then does it again? And wow, look at that. This sinner's been washed clean. Is it like that? Is it that easy? Wow. Call this number. Yes. It's that easy. It's that easy. It can be that easy for you, for me. I should say, though, it wasn't that easy for everybody. You see, I mentioned earlier that God is forgiving, but holy and perfect. And as a holy God, he cannot just snap his fingers and forgive sins. That would be unjust, right? One of the principles of justice is that crimes must be punished. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa knew this. It would not have helped their country to just declare amnesty on all the racial violence that had taken place over the centuries. Even Judah needed to be forgiven for their sins, and they were. God punished Judah. He destroyed their town, took their city, took them out of the Promised Land, held them in captivity for 70 years. God forgives them, but punishes them too. We have to be punished. You and I are sinners. We have to be punished to the full extent of the divine law. And here's the bad news. The punishment's going to hurt. You know what the Bible says the punishment for sin is? What are the wages of sin? Death. Not just death, spiritual death. Permanent alienation from God. This is the problem. How can God punish us justly for our sins, but also forgive us? How can God send us to hell, which needs to happen, but also show us mercy, which doesn't? How can God be both just and forgiving? If you've been around church for a while, you know the answer to that question. You're like itching to say it. You're in your chairs. I know, know pastor. I know, pastor. Call on me. Call on me. But maybe you don't know how God accomplished that, how God was just and merciful at the same time. Well, let me tell you how he did it. He came to earth as a perfect man, Named Jesus. He was named Jesus because the name Jesus means savior. Because the angel said he will do what? He will save the people from their sins. And how did he save the people from their sins? He took the punishment we deserve. He died on the cross in our place. God counted that punishment as the one we deserve. Isaiah even predicts this. You see, Isaiah was written before Jesus came, but it's also a book of prophecy. and We're going to be getting into those prophecies more as we wind down our series here. Isaiah foresees a time when a king will come again and rule over his people. The passage we read this morning predicts the arrival of this king, right? Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Jesus is that king, but this king will be a different kind of king. He won't be an earthly king. He will be a servant king, a suffering king. Towards the end of Isaiah, we read more about this king and what he volunteered to do on our behalf. And one of the things he volunteered to do was to suffer for our sins. That's what the prophet writes. In chapter 53, I, the Lord, will give my servant a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the sinners, the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many... And made intercession for sinners. This is what King Jesus came to do. Bear the sins of many. Take our sins upon himself. Because Jesus died the death we deserve to die. We can be forgiven. God did this because he is holy and just, but he is also forgiving. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? If you do, hold on to it. It's the most important reality of your life. If you don't believe it, you should. It's the good news. It's the best news you'll ever hear. Believe it. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's your only shot at the magic kingdom. You have no future. Trust me on the authority of the word of God. You have no future, no eternal future without forgiveness. Since uh, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Committee a commission started in the 90s, uh, international observers were actually curious about whether or not it would work. I mean, can any nation really recover from generations of sin and racism? Sometimes I wonder about that for our own country. I mean, do we have any real hope, really, for peace and togetherness in America, given the corrupt foundation of slavery and greed upon which we were built? I don't know. We can hope, but I don't know. So anyway, South Africa, people were curious. Can Desmond Tutu restore a nation? Honestly, results were mixed. Uh, Plenty of people got away with crimes that were never punished. Uh, Some black South Africans were deeply skeptical of the proceedings. In a sense, the country was so deeply racist it couldn't undo much of the systemic and social damage. Now, don't get me wrong. South Africa is a better nation today because of the TRC And I think Americans have actually a lot to learn from how they dealt with their past. But there's too much sin in South Africa for Desmond Tutu to heal. For all his charisma and strength, Nelson Mandela couldn't do as much as he wanted to do. The nation is still broken. If there is no future without forgiveness, then South Africa might not have a future. For that matter, neither might we. But there's a lesson here Epcot tells it too. Our efforts to build magical kingdoms on earth will fail every time. We are too far gone. Our red dye sins are stu- too deeply ingrained. Yes, we need truth and reconciliation commissions. We need Nelson Mandela's. We need Desmond Tutu's. We need Disneyland's. But more than any of that, we need Jesus Christ. The Son of the Father and the giver of the Holy Spirit the father is the, of Jesus is the only one who can punish our sin adequately. His son Jesus is the only one who can purchase our forgiveness. The spirit is the only one who can affect in us the change brought by his mercy. So Tutu is right that we have no future without forgiveness, but it is the Lord's forgiveness that we need, and it is the Lord's forgiveness that we can have. So do you need to be forgiven of your sins this morning? The answer to that leading rhetorical question is an unequivocal Yes. All of your sins, even the sins you won't admit to, you must be forgiven of them. There can be no sins in the forever kingdom. So be forgiven, get yourself baptized, cleansed as white as snow. You can have a future in the most magical place in heaven on earth, but first you must be forgiven of your sins.